Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Bounce on its point, wow. The Fates, the gods are with the gods. Hot pies, cold drinks. Get your footy record. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I'm Emma Race and as always joined by my football loving pie eating the non-vegan veggie versions of us. Um, Football loving lady friends, how are you Felicity Race? I'm very well, thank you. Ready for a pie. Mm. Got me thinking about it now. A $2 pie before the bounce is going to affect no one more (laughs) than this woman. It's her favourite food. How many can you do, Lucy Race? I could eat a pie every single day. Really? Really? I thought you'd say like one an hour. Well, yeah, I could. Mm-hmm. But I would I would actually eat a pie every day for lunch. Oh mm-hmm. my god. How many do you don't do, Nicole? Me. Yeah, no. Well at the footy, I don't do food at the footy. This is something I have a superstition. So yeah. It's my omen thing. And welcoming a woman who packs her own basket. Alicia sometimes. <laughs> I'm so pumped and I love a vegetarian pie, but the last time I had a meat pie was in 1981. Oh, They're still selling that exact same batch of pies. <laughs> you know that, don't you? Yes. The thing that makes me really gross out about pies is when people use their finger to spread the tomato Ew. sauce. That puts me in a body bag. Mm. Mm. If they do it on your pie or their own. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Kathy Sear is away this week. Um, Sally. She's, she's lawyering. She's lawyering abroad and we can't wait to have her back because I think Omen Watch does go wanting when she's not here. I oh. have an offering for Omen Watch this week, but when I mm. mooted it earlier, you guys just we said did that. Uh-uh. it's just an actual, <laughs> just a crappy piece not, of information. Not, no, so, crappy Lucy Race. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Lucy, have you got an omen for oh, us? I do have an omen for you. Well, it's a retrospective because mm. that always works much better. Cheating. That the last time the dogs played for premiership points in country Victoria, which they did last weekend, but the time before that, Carlton and Hawthorne played on the same day and Carlton beat Hawthorne that day. So we should have known that Carlton was going to beat Hawthorne. And all those people complaining that that was the tip you got wrong, it was there. It was there in history. You just needed to do some digging. Okay, so I feel like my crappy omen slash piece of information is actually worthy of being told here then because oh. on the 19th of <laughs> the only time, the last time Carlton, Hawthorne and Carlton met on the 19th of August, Hawthorne won. And then last week was the 19th of August and Carlton won. So the, the ledger is square. So the next time they play... Yeah, it doesn't tell you anything. On no. the 19th that of also, August. That also will not be an omen. But yeah. what if they One play of them it will in... win. <laughs> but what if they play it in country Victoria well, and have a pie? Oh, then Jesus. All bets are off. I've got one more. Yes, go. Okay, and this is leading into to the finals. There is a chance that Richmond and Melbourne are both going to play in a final series. The last time... Head exploding. That happened 
was 1940. <gasps> Just think oh. about that. What happened in 1940? Well, there was a bit of stuff going on in the world. Um, they actually met on the 28th of September and played in a grand final. On the same day, the Luftwaffe launched a massive daylight raid against London and Bristol. So, oh, that tells us all we need to know, really. That tells mm-hmm. us what we need to know. That <laughs> I don't know what that is. But <laughs> well, with our end of the world, oh, that fill your, ba- fill that your bathtubs again. and yep. buy some bully beef. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I'm spam. Comfortable the with um, bully the beef. apocalypse? White cliffs talk. You're uncomfortable with yeah. the apocalypse. Yeah. I'm not excited about it either. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> I think uh. it's just one of those things where you like. Get an idea and then you just keep running yeah. with it and yeah. you run it into the ground. It's called Pure the David Letterman, Letterman the end theory. Of the world. Yeah, right. Um, now, one thing that did happen over the week is we got a lot of feedback, um, a lot of feedback from both sides of the ledger. So that was good. Thank you very much for getting in touch with us. We do pride ourselves on getting back to you. Alicia, you wanted to have a chat about something that we got some feedback on. Yes. Last week, Lucy's introduction was amazing, bending the arc and spoke about the positivity and love that we need to have in the world with so much hate going on overseas and here. And we got a great letter from James who wrote to us and says that he loves the podcast, but he said, um, we didn't want to invoke hate. And then all of a sudden me with my inarticulate mouth started talking about how um, we hate teams irrationally. Now, in AFL parlance, hating a team is equivalent to just going, oh, nick off. You know, it's not big. It's There's, there's a long history of just irrationally hating. And I didn't bring the, the articulateness to say that I am just curious to why people dislike teams. Our hate doesn't run deep in AFL. From one year you can hate a team that's on top for many years and then you feel sorry for them because they're on the bottom and, and it's our allegiances shift and so forth. And he brought up that, he's, uh, we, that we were perhaps saying our hate is okay, it's funny, nobody gets... Uh, hurt because of our hate and he goes on to talk about the English League and some horrible events that have happened and I think that you know events in South Africa or all all around the world we are just so lucky that Mm. in Australia we have not felt that kind of hate and I do not in any way I don't even I just don't even hate Marmalade. I dislike it. She's told me that actually. That's true. I dislike it. And so I just wanted to say that (laughs) it's just my uh, inarticulateness. I always say the first thing on my mind. I carried a watermelon and so forth. Balls, my uterus, I talk about a lot. But just that I am so curious about why we dislike teams. teams, And Mm. I really wanted to talk about that in a week that everyone was talking about hate, but I didn't segue very well. It's like, oh, all that love. And by the way, I hate. I don't think we should ever lose fact of the site. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about being articulate. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we should ever lose sight of the fact that we are so lucky that when mm. we go to a football game in Australia, we can all catch the train with supporters of both codes. Yep. And yep. I know from in in other sporting codes around the world, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And Long may it be so. Long may it. It always shocks me that I'm mature enough to admit that in 2005 I really barracked for the Swans and in 2007 I really barracked for the Cats and Mm. then um, my team Mm. went on to have these long-running rivalries in the final series with both of those teams and I think back on it and think, gee, my personality can really give way Mm. to, you know, some love and joy on this side and some dislike and some, you know, irrational feelings towards teams on the other side. I let my kids 
Barrack for the Cats is kind of a bit of a nod to my dad, and now I'm regretting that enormously. It's but, stuck. And it's funny, too, that you can hate a, a player because he wears long socks or, or ducks, or, or, ducks or, or does something crazy. So it is funny sometimes why we dislike people. I remember going to the grand final parade um, before Hawthorne and Sydney played. And, uh, you know, the rival, there was pretty good rivalry there because Buddy had gone. And... In my mind, I was like, I really don't like Sydney. I don't like them. And I stood there and watched every single player go past in the back of one of those cars sitting on a um, barbecue, on an outdoor yeah, chair. Oh, H&S chair. thing again. Oh, H&S. Mm. Um, and every single one, I was like, oh, I've got to clap him. Oh, <laughs> yeah, my God. Yeah. Oh, what oh, a but legend. I like him. Oh, but, <laughs> oh he's a le- By the time they'd gone past, I was like, get me a Swans membership. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> yeah, interesting that true. you should say that mm. because this weekend, well, first game of the round, actually, it looks like we'll be saying goodbye to Hodgie and Gibbo and oh. potentially Bob Murphy, depending on how the cookie crumbles mm. over the weekend. Mm. Is that, am I an- correct in saying that? Yeah. Yeah, and I feel as equally bereft saying goodbye to all three of those yes, players. I know. Do you Absolutely. agree? Yes. Yep. yep. Have we got any more retirements to watch out for? Well, there's one I'd just like to have a little shout out to Jack Fitzpatrick, who had come from Melbourne to Hawthorne and unfortunately um, sustained a concussion against Brisbane earlier this year, and is now at the age of 26 retiring because on, on medical advice that. Not only can he not play AFL, but they don't want him to play football at any level. It's heartbreaking. And that is really heartbreaking. And I think, you know, we're up to quite a number of players who are in that situation now. And I just want Jack to know that we we see you there and we doff our caps and really wish you all the best. And I'm really glad that he got the information before rather mm, than yeah. after. Yeah, there was a story this week and I, I'm going to lead with a story that I don't have all the information on because that's always great. But that's what we do here. <laughs> yeah, go what could possibly go wrong? But there, isn't there a rugby league player who's now suing his ex-club for not making him retire? Um, was the oh, story that came out. Really? So he's got a, a brain injury from too many concussions and, yeah, is looking to take legal action against mm. his, his former club for not forcing him to retire. We should check with Ladies Who League on that one. Yeah, that's a good yeah. idea, actually. Yeah. Um, going further afield and looking to what's been happening in the States, which is many and varied, mm. um, but on the sporting field, Alicia, you've been following this. We've actually all been following this um, Colin Kaepernick story for quite a while. That's right. In September 2016, of course, Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeled during a national anthem. Um, he was a 49er quarterback. He was one of the players that led to the 49ers having a, a Super Bowl, you know, playing the Super Bowl four years ago and much loved, but of course uh, got so much flack for kneeling and um, subsequently has lost a position uh, playing football. But on the weekend on Saturday, nearly 100 active and retired officers, mostly uh, policemen of colour, were wearing black shirts reading I'm with Cap and they rallied around him to say that he respects us we really support what he's talking about. And on Monday night, a dozen Browns players knelt during the national anthem against the Giants uh, while others stood next to him and in support. And this is the first uh, white player who has um, knelt. Uh, his name is Seth DeValve and he's the first white player who knelt. But we've got to remember, of course, that in the US women's national team, Megan Rapinoe knelt last year and, again, so condemned from a lot of people. So there's a lot of love for the cap and there's a lot of talk about how he's an invaluable quarterback, ESPN 
ESPN uh, looked at coaches to rank uh, and the and put his quarterback number at 29, which uh, another six came after him. So he's still a very valuable player. People are talking about whether he's any good. And it's really interesting to see so many clubs saying, oh, look, he's amazing. And it's not the, it's not the, what he's mm. done, but we don't <laughs> want him at the moment because he's no, it's not he good enough. Fit. But it, mm. it, it's mm. really interesting and obviously with the race talks over there. And he's doing such great work with Know Your Rights Camp. And, um, yeah, he's just – Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah. And course. I think it's interesting that it's getting, you know, another run now because a white player has knelt that this, you know, somehow gives it more authenticity it's, or validity or something. It's also really interesting because the idea that he isn't among the 50 or 60 – best quarterbacks is extraordinary. And that discourse about the fact that he has ability, but we just don't think that he fits in our team is something that really reminded me of some of the discourse around players in the AFL like Adam Goods and Mm, not that he was up for another team, but also for Heredia Lumumba. And it made me think of that article that came out this week. So there's a documentary coming out on the 27th of August on SBS called Fair Game. And Carolyn Wilson wrote an article about this. I think she's seen it. And what it really explores is the tensions of the two sides of his life. So that side of football and then that side of family and heritage and, and ideas. And Um, You know, Lumumba had a 10-year career. He played 223 games. He was a premiership player. And some of the things that came out in that article were just extraordinary. The Mm. fact that he had a nickname. Let's not. Do we want to not not repeat it? A a nickname that was. It's a racial slur. A racial slur. And that he said that he put up with that to fit in. And, you know, there's been some discourse around whether did he really have that? How long did we call him that for? That kind of thing. Heredia was one of the AFL's first multicultural ambassadors appointed back in 2006, but grew disillusioned with that position. And when the Adam Goods um, situation kind of came about, that was a bit of a final straw. So I think Mm -hmm. you'll remember that he didn't stay silent when Mm -hmm. after Eddie Maguire had made his moment moment yeah and the club were saying let's all just you know stay quiet until we can decide how to to deal with this and Heredia Lumumba but said no I'm I, you know came out and said that was completely not on and then in 2014 he called a team meeting to raise issues of homophobia and and likened the homophobia that kind of ran through the club as as being akin to to racism and what I've kind of gleaned from doing a bit of reading and going back and listening to some of the things, some of his speeches. He made an amazing speech where he talked about changing his name back at the Copeland Medal. And this is a man who is eloquent and passionate and thoughtful and thinks very deeply about a lot of these issues. And on the other side of the ledger is the discourse about he's an attention seeker. He Mm. doesn't fit in. It's all about him. Um, you know, he might have been query his and wellness querying his, as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it really reminded me of that whole Kaepernick. Well, you're really good, but just wouldn't didn't really fit. And even when Lamomba retired due to concussion, there was still just that undercurrent of, query. I guess, that tall poppy and that that same kind of um, conversation that you'd hear when people tried to justify why they booed Adam Goods. Mm-hmm. And so I see some real links, but I'm really looking forward to seeing that documentary. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been made by a filmmaker in New York. It'd be interesting to see what that fresh perspective brings. Absolutely. I um, We've been queried a couple of times um, 
being Hawthorn supporters about our response to the situation where people were booing Adam Goods and recently we were asked, you know, did we think that Luke Hodge had done enough? And I can't speak on behalf of Luke Hodge and I certainly can't speak on behalf of all Hawthorne supporters or all supporters at all. But um, what I can say is I think I speak for all of us when we say that we reiterate that that was a real moment of heartbreak for us. It was a chapter that was horrible and we didn't have the podcast at that stage when the booing conversation Mm. was happening. And I think we were all kind of forced just onto Twitter to you know, get embroiled in some Twitter stouches about it. But it probably was a part of the reason why we started the pod. I think we all felt really disillusioned by the game and about the culture around the game. And I want to say that I, I spoke to Shelley Ware and in consultation with her, I've, I'm going to go with this this week on the pod, that um, I was lucky enough to hear Belinda Duarte speak on Friday. And Belinda is an Indigenous leader. She was the 2012 Football Woman of the Year and she was critical to the creation of the current Gamaji Institute at um, Tigerland when she was there. And she spoke a lot about history and family and family connections and she has an extraordinary story to tell. But one of the things that I asked her was how do we make sure the situation that happened to Adam Goods and, and kind of was his leaving, you know, um, how do we make sure that that doesn't happen again? And I realised probably when I asked it, and I certainly realised after that it's a really naive question for me to ask, because in some ways what happened to him happens every day, repeatedly for Indigenous Australians. And Belinda said something to me that was kind of a breadcrumb that Russell, um, Rusty Smith had left for us when Mm. we spoke to him earlier in the year. And she said, you know, she kind of reiterated that for us, we have a white history and we also have a black history, as does she. And um, she really was, um, her whole speech that I heard on Friday was really encouraging people to get in contact with that history and to really make a connection with it that was a significant one. And so what I kind of came to it was that there is no real solving of a situation like that. But if there is, there's no quick fix, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But if there is one thing that you could do is that I've kind of identified that um, taking greater interest in what has happened before us and taking greater interest in respecting our Indigenous history and respecting the oldest living culture in the world, which was something that Russell said to us as well, especially within the areas that we live, would really help that process. And I think, especially at football um, events and games, we often recognise country, but what does that really mean? Mm. Um, How did the Kulin live on this land that we now live on and play on? And I think part of changing the conversation is in respecting the history of our Indigenous family through learning. So I have taken this on. I aim each week to bring you small kernels of our Indigenous history so that together we can own it, we can speak to our kids about it, we can speak to our parents about it and we can celebrate it. So what I learned this week is that there are two scarred trees at the site of the MCG. These trees were removed um, and from the Birurung, which is another name for the Yarra, the original mm. name for the Yarra. So maybe we could call the Yarra the Birurung, you know, if you feel I comfortable mean, in doing yeah. that. And they were moved to um, the MCG site. They're red gums. You may have seen them. They've got small fences around them and they've probably got a plaque there, I think, as well. The scars on the tree are the result of their bark being used by the coolant to make canoes and other implements. And the MCG site was actually a meeting and corroboree um, ground. So these trees are one really visible, tangible link to what went before 
that we can see and we can look at and we can talk about with our families. And I was just thinking, I hope that this week when people are walking to the G, they'll take a moment if they see them to stop and look at them and appreciate their significance. And honour them. And honour them, yeah. Yeah. And maybe I'll bring you one thing every week from areas that are football related so that in changing that conversation, we can all own and respect and just feel proud of our Indigenous history. Yeah. Is that too much? It um, apparently I said too much. Good <laughs> um, one thing that happened this week was Rob Butter, Rod Butters was in the news um, last week. He made some pretty explosive admissions and kind of took people back to the history of what was happening at St Kilda when he was there. But one of the things that he did bring up was, Nicole, was gambling. And that's kind of been something you've wanted to talk about for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I think we all have. But um, his actual claims were, was that the AFL had done, quote, an appalling job with gambling. He says that they'd been weak and, quote, taking money while our kids are learning to gamble through the love of football, which, you know, it's it's actually kind of, it's pretty emotional language, but kind of hard to argue with in many ways. Of course, um, you know, that has been, Rod Butter's sort of reign at St Kilda has been, I guess, in some ways complicated by other issues, which he's been quite open about. But I don't think that changes the facts that the AFL's just signed a $10 million a year deal with a betting agency. Victorians lost $94 million last year just from AFL outlets alone. And that, you know, everywhere you look in the media, TV, you know, radio around the ground, um, there is gambling advertising and it is absolutely impossible to avoid. We talked a few weeks ago about the legislation that the federal government was trying to introduce regarding um, limiting gambling advertising during live broadcasts only up until 8.30pm and five minutes either side of games as well. Now that legislation hasn't passed but more importantly the Cricket Australia, NRL and the AFL have all been given exemptions regardless. So I, the three biggest sports basically are not going to be di- in any way affected by that change, even if it does get through. So, I mean, really mixed messages coming out of out of the government and out of the AFL. The other thing that the AFL is doing is this thing, this task force, Project Fruit, um, which is uh, involving two of the leading clubs that earn the most revenue from um, gambling, Carlton and Hawthorne, or Hawthorne being the leading one, with the idea of trying to wean clubs off pokies. Um, I know that AFL chair Richard Goiter is sort of sees this as a personal mission, but I, I think pokies is just one part of it. And I think they've got mm. to look bigger picture, frankly. I, I agree. I think like gambling's just become synonymous with sport and it's very, very difficult to keep children away from that. It's That's the key, isn't so it? There's, I think there's two parts. I think mm. there's the, the fact that so many clubs are propped up most, you know, leading the, the ladder is my own club mm. um, with about $20 million a year derived from pokies revenue. Not only is it the pokies, it's the advertising around yeah. gambling as well. So if you want to listen to a sports radio station, you're going to listen you're going to hear odds. If you're going to look in the newspaper to work out who you're tipping, you're going to see the odds. I know that children as young as six can look at the odds and say, well that team's paying this, that team's paying that, that's they're the favourite. Mm. And so it's so intrinsically linked now on so many different levels that it's very, very difficult and to And it's made fun for kids too, isn't it? I mean it's all the cartoons and all the fun sort of imagery and using footballers. It's pretty it's pretty hard to resist. There's so many apps where there's clicking 
and it, it's kind of like a gateway to gambling. There's a lot of apps that yeah. I have banned because they're just so much like gambling. And is this going to get the way of cigarettes and alcohol? Are well, we going to become yeah. a nanny state? This That's is not the, a nanny state. No, no, though. no, no. I, I 100% agree yeah. with you, but the, the argument being. Yeah, I mean, the aim is to just limit access for children. That's it. Gambling's legal. I'm fine with that. Alcohol mm. and cigarettes. And, and every single time that they, one of those um, particular issues was raised and, and they had tried to remove it from the game, the clubs were going to fall over. They've managed to deal with it. You know, there are ways of addressing that. There, there really seems to be two parts to it, though, doesn't it? There's the the sports betting agencies who are making the money by, you know, betting on the game. And mm. that's a bit where I see that promoted towards children. That And then the second part is clubs actually making money out of pokies within their yeah. own venues and I think that um, they're two very they're two very different sort of um, streams of that need two different approaches Possibly, you know the, yeah. the fact that Hawthorne can have the success that they've had for so many years and still be on the top of the table in terms of relying and whether it's relying or topping up with gambling revenue does that say something bigger about how the game is funded, um, mm. you know, because that, that that's a very different yeah. stream to betting agencies mm. making their money off, you know, advertising to the general public, I think. Well, it was mm. interesting in that article that cited North Melbourne as the only club that doesn't um, rely on... Only Victorian club. Uh, sorry, only Victorian club that doesn't rely on the gambling money. Talking about, well, you, you have to work within the confines of a salary cap anyway. So there's mm. sometimes, mm. I think that I'm going to paraphrase, not quote, but they were saying clubs are kind of at a pain to spend the money that they're making because they have these pools of money which they can't spend on players, but I guess they can use it to make it a destination club, Mm. you know. So we wanted to actually have a significant offering for you today because we have been um, threatening to speak about gambling for quite a while. And Kate put in the hard yards this week because she's overseas and somehow she managed to hook up a (laughs) Skype interview which um, with Dr Charles Livingston, who is a senior lecturer in the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. He's a leading expert on gambling. And in addition to many other honours and roles, Charles was previously a member of the Australian Government's Ministerial Expert Advisory Group on Gambling. He is on Skype and Kate is in Helsinki. And you will hear that he's on Skype because he's <laughs> at the snow on a family holiday. So <laughs> you can hear his kids snowboarding in the background and woohoo, yee-hee. <laughs> um, but he has some incredibly interesting things to say. I think you'll really enjoy this interview. I wondered maybe if we could start off by asking you a little bit about something that I've seen that you've written about before, which is called the gamblification of sport. What what does that yep. mean? What does that word mean? Well, you can gamify anything, but what we've seen in Australia, certainly in the last 10 to 15 years, is... Um, an intensely uh, strong relationship developing between the gambling business, particularly sports betting, and uh, the you know the, the sporting codes in Australia. So the biggest you know association between gambling and sport in Australia is probably with the NRL, but the AFL is not far behind it, and the cricket uh, code is is itself also heavily embroiled with gambling companies at the moment. <clears throat> but the other thing that's happened is. Uh, the AFL and the NRL clubs have um, a fairly long-standing relationship with poker machines. So what they've seen is that they uh, are able to generate very significant cash reserves and revenue from uh, the poker machine business and coupled with uh, their sort of partnerships with the, the bookies, the, the uh, 
you know, the online bookies in particular, they've been able to generate a lot more revenue. Now, what that means is that they've tended to put that into their football department and so on, and so you end up with some of the cashed-up clubs with massive football departments with, you know, more trainers and therapists than there are actually players. But, you know, they think this is going to give them the extra 1%. So, uh, essentially, gamification just means that the codes have become completely embroiled in the gambling business and uh, the fans unfortunately tend to see it as uh, something that you have to do if you want to be a full-blooded supporter of the club. Mm. Let me ask you Charles, I mean what obviously this gamblification of sport has meant that there has been a lot more money coming to the coffers um, of, of sport in general. For example through sports advertising AFL broadcasters now have a lot more money to play with and with that increase in revenue we now have things like higher payments to players and I wonder whether you feel that we're we're too far gone in a sense that the relationship has developed in such a way that there's not really much of an incentive for anybody to challenge things. What do you think? I don't think it's that bad a situation. I mean, I you know, I'm always optimistic. In the old days, if you recall... You, probably, you guys probably aren't old enough, but I am to remember when <laughs> tobacco-sponsored cricket, when yes. tobacco-sponsored AFL and NRL codes, and indeed racing cars and everything. And people used to say, well, if we ban tobacco sponsorship, then, you know, it'll be the end of the sport. Uh, this is nonsense, of course. Uh, in those days, what happened was the uh, the government in Victoria, for example, the Victorian Health Foundation, uh, the which became VicHealth, bought out some of that advertising and then weaned the clubs off it. And, you know, the world didn't come to an end. The code just got better and stronger. And, indeed, it benefited, I think, from its its increased association with healthy activities as opposed to extremely unhealthy ones. So I think there's a way through this. It does need a bit of thinking, but there's a way through it. The other important thing to remember is that at the moment the the principal – the bookies' revenue goes through the advertising, as you said. So what that means is that the broadcast partner gets um, can anticipate a lot of revenue from uh, the bookies advertising on their station, uh, and then they pass that on in terms of very high broadcast rights payments. But, you know, you have to look a little bit into the future and say, well, at what point is broadcast TV going to be the principal organ for dissemination of footy games? I mean, you know, because I've got a phone deal with one of the major companies, I can stream live every game on my phone. And, you know, if I've got an Air, an Apple Air TV thing, I can watch it live on the big screen at home. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I kind of think that what's going to happen is the whole broadcast system is going to collapse in the not-too-distant future. It's You know, heritage broadcasting is very close to the end of its day. And so the revenue will the revenue stream is not going to go through them anymore. It's going to go through straight through the AFL. They'll be selling streaming services to Netflix or something like that, or indeed have their own streaming service. So, yeah. you know, I mean, to say that the broadcast rights have to be pumped up to pay the players is nonsense. I mean, I kind of think the business model in which the AFL or the NRL uh, sells a product directly to their consumers is one where they're going to make even more money out of the business. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that happens, Charles, and you mentioned this before, is that um, clubs themselves increasingly look to things like developing uh, or buying up 
poker machines, poker machine licences to increase their own revenue. So clubs look, looking to these external sources yeah. of revenue. We can talk about some of some of the harms that might be associated with that in a moment, but I wonder first up whether you think that that's also a necessary model or whether there are other options for clubs to consider to, to diversify their revenue streams. Yeah, well, look, I mean, most of the AFL clubs have got a poker machine venue, at least some have got three or four. I think... The real issue here is that, um, you know, what do they do with that money? They, they can't pay the players anymore because of the salary cap, so they pump it into their uh, football department. And, you know, some of the football departments are getting, you know, top-heavy with the, um, the people that they're employing with all of this money. And you have to start wondering at what point it becomes counterproductive. Well, that's, you know, that's for the football commentators, not me. But my strong view is that clubs can and will survive quite happily without poker machine revenue. And there are two interesting examples. One is the obvious one, which is North Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, they gave up their pokies some years ago. They've never really looked back. I mean, I know they haven't had a great year this year, but they have consistently performed well above um, the standard you would expect looking at their list. And they, they do that without the sort of money that pumps that comes from the pokies. Footscray doesn't get a lot of money from the pokies. They've actually abandoned plans to build a new Palazzo-type venue that they were building because it just didn't work. So we'll wait and see what they do. They've still got a couple of venues and they make money from them, but then I'm getting a vast stream from them. Mm-hmm. And the other interesting example, I think, is the Geelong Footy Club, which I'm a supporter of, and they have uh, basically indicated that they're going to get rid of venue, the venue that they have at the, at the ground at Cadinia Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to get rid of the machines from there and they're not going to put them back in once the redevelopment's finished. And in order to fund that redevelopment, they basically rang members up and said, give us money, this is what it's for. And members did. So, you know, they got debt free just by asking their members directly for support. Um, and it worked, you know. So you don't have to rely on pokey revenue. You don't have to sting your supporters and, you know, exploit them in order to make enough money uh, to play the game well. So, yeah, and of course, you know, neither of the West Australian clubs have pokies and they're pretty strong usually. So I think the idea that you need this vast stream of revenue to run a successful sporting game or sporting club seems to me to be ludicrous. Of course, once the money's there, it's hard to give it up. But I think if the AF Phil was genuine and wanted to assist the clubs to give up this revenue, then I think they could find a way really easily to do it. One of the things that we often hear said, Charles, is that clubs with poker machines, including sporting clubs, um, yes, they they have this relationship with poker machines, but that there are community benefits because they're required by the government to put some money back into the community. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your research and, and what you've found. How realistic is that claim that clubs put money back into communities and therefore um, that that has an ultimate benefit? Yeah, it's, unfortunately, it's nonsense. I mean, the, the problem with all of these schemes in every state, but, you know, in Victoria, we've got better data than other states. We know with more precision, but most of the money goes back into the operating costs of the, of the venue. So on average in Victoria, 67% of the amount which is supposedly going to community benefits is actually going to the operating costs of the venue in question. So that includes things like the salaries of the staff. Mm-hmm. Their super payments, their insurance payments, if they if they have to pay rent, the rent, you know, the air conditioning, the heating and power bills and the water bill, you know, those sorts of things which are just the standard costs of running a business. Um, very small proportion goes to what anyone would regard as a charitable or community 
benevolent purpose. So that's a nonsense. You know, with the AFL club, most of the money goes into running the club, you know, paying coaches and therapists and God knows what. So fine. I mean, if you're a supporter of the club, you might think that's a community benefit. But, you know, if you're just a member of the public, it's not really, and it's certainly not benefiting the broader community in the sense that we would expect a community benefit would provide. So is it fair to say then, Charles, that when we hear clubs say that they put X amount of money back into the community, their definition of what uh, it means to put money back into the community is at best a very narrow one? Uh, Well, I mean, the problem with it is it's so broad. I mean, the ministerial directions which govern this, you could drive a truck through and Mm -hmm. sadly most clubs drive trucks through them every year when they do their return. So on average about 2.2% of the money that goes through poker machines finds its way to anything which could be remotely regarded as benevolent or philanthropic and that includes the money that goes to sport fields, maintenance and so on. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a tiny proportion of what they claim and most of it just goes to their own operating costs. It's a, it's a joke, I'm afraid. So I suppose then that leads us to my last question for you and that is what do you think, uh, if anything, needs to be done? It, it, do you think that more regulation of some kind is needed? Do we need more harm reduction measures? What would you like to see happen in this in this general space? Well, I mean, the federal government, bless their little hearts, have recently moved to introduce some consumer protection measures for the online sector, which are long overdue. And in that package is a prohibition on advertising until 8.30 in the evening. Now, you know, that's inadequate, but it's at least a step in the right direction and it signals that the Commonwealth government is prepared to have a go at this stuff. So that's one thing that needs to be done. Um, The second thing, and I think you've got to remember that the scale of these two uh, betting and gambling operations is quite significantly different. So um, sports betting is worth around $1 billion a year in Australia at this time. Uh, The pokies are worth about $12 billion a year. So pokies still cause 75% of the harm associated with gambling in Australia. Um, Sports betting is catching up quickly at the rate of around 30% growth in revenue per annum and that's significant but the pokies are still far and away the biggest game in town now we know now after many years of research that there are things we can do to poker machines to make them less addictive and all of those things can be done quite readily because pokies are just you know a computer with a fancy display so you know one way forward is to modify the machines to reduce their addictiveness other things that have been suggested by various bodies including the productivity commission including mandatory pre-commitment systems that is a system which requires you to register get a card set a limit of your own choosing and then you have to stick to that limit because all the machines are networked and you can't spend more than you you said you intended to when you were sort of stone cold sober away from the, the venue and the machines so those sorts of things can be done we also need to sort of regulate machines better so they don't end up concentrating in areas of disadvantage or stress. One of the reasons why poker machines are attractive to people in disadvantaged or stressed demographics, I guess, is that uh, they provide a sort of a soothing, comforting release from the sadness and unhappiness that people are experiencing when they're having stressful or disadvantaged lives. Um, And that's why we see so many machines in those types of uh, locations, including, I have to say, the, uh, the AFL club machine. 
Well, that sounds like a very good um, point to leave it on, Charles. I know you're at Threadbow skiing, so um, which is what we can what we can hear. I don't in the know background. if what I do is properly skiing, but anyway, whatever it is, I slide down the mountain. <laughs> okay. Well, that sounds like great fun to me. Um, All right, so thank idea. you so much, Charles, for doing this. I really appreciate it, and um, enjoy the rest of your trip. Thank you. Charles had some really interesting things to say about North Melbourne, so we thought why not actually just speak to North Melbourne and um, moments ago we had a chat to the CEO of the North Melbourne Football Club, Carl Delina. Carl, we've been talking about gambling this morning and a North Melbourne is, of course, always held up as the only Melbourne or Victorian-based club that doesn't rely on gambling money and funds from gambling. Can I ask you, what was the catalyst for wanting better and losing pokies? Yeah, well, it goes back about 10 years now, I suppose. We, uh, um, back before my time, we had a small operation, I think, of pokies at Etihad Stadium. And, um, you know, it just wasn't really effective uh, for the club. And I think probably at that time, it was really a financial decision um, to, to move out of it. Uh, it just it was, wasn't a, a useful operation. Uh, but then as we moved forward and, and you know, had opportunities to look at improving the business and we got pitched ideas around pokies, um, you know, position was formed at board level uh, and management that it, it wasn't really a business we wanted to go back into. Uh, it, it didn't really fit with what we were doing in the community. So we, we made a conscious decision to, uh, to steer clear going forward. You um, Recently, the club CEOs caught up with some of the AFL executives in Tassie and I was wondering if pokies and gambling was one of the things that was talked about. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a, a growing concern at uh, commission level within the AFL and, uh, and Richard Goyer uh, has been public on it now to say that they'd really like to reduce the the reliance on clubs uh, with with pokies, uh, just yeah, it's it's a very strong revenue stream for some clubs, uh, but it's seen as one of those things that might be inconsistent with the overall values of what we're trying to achieve as a as a code in the community. So uh, there's a big focus now on forming a working group to look at how do we reduce the reliance on of the industry on pokies. We hear a lot from clubs that do actually have a lot of money coming in from gambling and, and pokies and things like that. We hear that their justification is that they put that money back into community programs. But what we see at North Melbourne is that your community programs don't go wanting. So how is it that you're able to sustain your business but also still fulfil that triple bottom line community outreach aspect without these kinds of funds coming in? Yeah, well, I think for, for us it was about putting community at the heart of what we do uh, with the huddle programs that we have. They, they started off in about 2009 when we built the facility here at Arden Street. Um, and since then, it's evolved and, and we've created a, a separate charity, if you like, that, that the huddle is housed in. Um, and then, then we put a big focus on our staff there who run it to also engage in um, seeking funding for programs, whether that's, that's through government councils, philanthropy. Um, and there's been really good support because of the, the work that we do. Uh, so it's really become quite a well-funded initiative and, and we focus heavily on the community aspects. I did read an article about your Kanga Tech software. Yes. Is that, you know, are you finding 
new and interesting ways of finding a revenue stream, I guess, through through different types of ideas? Yeah, definitely. And that's been the really exciting part of it because it, yeah, if you don't have a reliable income stream for other, from other sources, it really challenges you to look at new ideas. So so that the business that we've created there evolved out of some of the things we're doing internally uh, around uh, injury prevention, particularly soft tissue injuries. And, and, we, and we saw the, uh, the the prospects or the opportunity to commercialise that. So we, we, we said we've got a start-up venture and we've been selling the technology and, and product to, to sporting clubs, particularly in the US, but also recently in the UK, um, who, who are really uh, grabbing hold of it. Uh, so it's, it's got real potential to, to take off and That's be a good, good business stream for us going forward. How do you process the programs that the players are given access to around responsible gambling when so many of the clubs actually do rely on this kind of revenue? Do you find that that would be a, a challenge for a CEO of a different club? Yeah, I think there's different aspects to that because one, uh, one of the sort of public gambling issues probably is around the, all the online uh, betting agencies, which I think clubs have been pretty good at uh, in working with the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation to to get out of sponsorships in that space and the, and the public exposure around that. Um, so they, they, I'd imagine the players would be more um, exposed to that space than pokies themselves. But, but you're right, there is a, a potential inconsistency in that messaging. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on leading the way on this and um, we really appreciate you giving us your time. No, it's great. My pleasure. So we're tackling all the big issues here this week. I think we've covered off um, in race relations. Um, we've done gambling. So I think given that the marriage equality um, <laughs> debate is um, happening in this country and it's um, coming down to crunch time, we saw some really interesting developments at AFL House this week, Felicity. We did. I'm watching on social media and I would say actually if you're not following your own club's pride groups on social media, get involved and, and see what they're doing. They're doing amazing stuff. Um, and we wanted to find out what was going on in terms of what's the AFL's position and how those groups are working with the AFL on things like public statements on marriage equality. So we caught up with someone who was in the room. Joining us here, we have Fiona Newton, the co-host of Chicks Talking Footy um, on Melbourne's Joy FM, which is Australia's only gay and lesbian radio station for people not in Victoria. She's also a founder of Hawks Pride, one of 15 LGBTIQ supporter groups that are now uh, existing around the AFL clubs. Um, there seems to have been such a huge increase in club pride groups this season. Fiona, what's driving this? Um, well, quite a few clubs actually began around the AFL Pride game that was held uh, in July up at the SCG between Sydney and St Kilda. So I think there's been, because there's been such a high-profile match being played, uh, a lot of the teams got on board and um, got motivated to be part of it, I suppose. So Beautiful. Yeah. And you come together as a collective and I noticed, and this is why I want to talk to you, that... You all headed into AFL House to um, to have a chat as a group. Yeah, that's right. So on Monday night, there was around about 25 people, including some of the people that were video conferenced in, um, and we were sitting in the AFL boardroom, which was a real watershed moment, I think, if someone had told me, you know, three or four years ago that um, we'd be having the year of the AFL as a group like that. I probably wouldn't have believed you, but... Um, 
yeah, it was it was very significant moment. And as a group, did you all go in with the same, um, I guess, concerns, questions, interests? How did it all play out? Well, for the first hour, we were talking with Tanya Hosh, so she's the new diversity and inclusion manager at the AFL. So it's a new role that's um, evolved, and um, she's really about encouraging inclusion for the Indigenous community, for you know, multicultural groups and for gender diverse and sexually diverse people. So we were sort of asking her advice about how to um, interact with the AFL around inclusion. And also one of the big issues at the moment, of course, is marriage equality. So we're asking her what the stance is with the AFL around that issue. Um, and she was able to give us some good advice around how to do that. And we, we have formally written a letter to the AFL as a collective to ask them to publicly support uh, marriage equality. So it's very exciting. It, it seems like there's so much going on at the moment. And, um, I mean, obviously with, um, you know, the, the cutoff for people enrolling to vote occurring all around the same time as the meeting, and the, there's a whole lot of groundswell there, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the AFL have put their logo on the marriage equality website alongside, you know, 1,400 corporations in Australia, but we really need those companies to be, and from our point of view, the AFL, which is the largest sporting code in Australia, to to be very vocal at the moment. Exactly, and just make a really strong statement. Well, hopefully that's going to happen. Can I just ask you finally, did I see that the um, Bulldog Pride Group and the Hawthorne Pride Group met up for a drink before a match? Um, we're actually, with the Hawks Pride Group, we met up with the Carlton Pride Group for their launch last week right. um, at Etihad, and this week we're meeting up with the Western Bulldogs before I, the game. So a lot of the groups are doing that now, where we're socialising together. I think that's yeah, a before, fan- before games. Of course, we don't sit together during the game. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Like, how, how how far does the friendship stretch? Yeah, that's right. We're we're all friends before the game, but um, no one wants to be dancing on someone's grave after a game, do they? So you know, together. Oh. Well, Fiona, I really hope that the AFL comes through um, quickly with a, a a good strong statement and um, good luck with, I guess, the evolution of what you're doing with Hawks Pride and and as the greater collective for all the the Pride groups out there. Yeah, thanks, guys, and thanks for your support for um, what you do around marriage equality and in football in general. <laughs> I loved hearing Fiona say that she couldn't quite believe that this was happening in her lifetime. That, like, I think we need to always acknowledge that we are actually making headway, that, yeah. that the, the game is really changing and that the culture around the game is really changing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're heading into round 23. And then it's finals. I read something very interesting in the paper this week by Miss Nicole Hayes. Oh no, uh, Craig Little wrote it. I just had my little my input, but um, it was Your just bit was my favourite. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so Craig asked uh, in the Guardian a couple of a handful of writers, uh, myself included, Pete Matessi, Sarah Walker, David Wish Wilson, who has such a cool name, Anson Cameron, um, uh, what our fairy tale ending would be if we were able to script the ending for the grand final and. And so I, I kind of, it sounds like a cliche, right, to give the Bulldogs another shot. But in my version, Bevo gives the tap to uh, Katie Brennan and she gets <laughs> to pull on the Bulldogs top that Lin Jong, who missed out last year too, got, um, gets to kick the match-winning goal and that we get to all watch Katie Brennan, Bob Murphy and Sue Alberti sing Sons and Daughters of the West oh. on the dais at the end of the day. What do you reckon? I like it. Love Lucy, it. Like what do you reckon? Um, yeah, that's good. My um, so if I think about my finals fairy tale, it's Richmond and Geelong. 
in the grand final because it is 50 years since they actually played in a grand final, the one time that they've met. And at that meeting, Richmond won by nine points. Of course they did. And nine has always been a significant number. For Richmond. Richmond. <laughs> so what I would like is to see those two come up against each other. Now, there is a, a bit of a streak going on. Richmond have not beaten Geelong since 2006. It's up to a 12-game losing streak. And to be honest, I do not know why someone has not named this. Like, we had the Kennet curse. Why are other losing streaks not named? It's Go just for a, it. it's Somebody a get in touch with me. Tell me think? what the name of this streak is. Imagine if they could... Beat them oh my. by nine points on the 50th anniversary. Oh it's my. got something to do with big cats and little cats. Can I just ask, oh, would you? Yeah, I like it. <laughs> the you, Battle of the Cats. Would you actually the... put Richmond Spotters through a close match? Absolutely, I would. <sighs> that is the fairy tale. Yeah. Not What's for them, yours? it's not. What's yours? What's <laughs> mine? Oh, well, mine involves some kind of reverse ticketing disaster where <laughs> the. <laughs> no, Random. Where, no, where you have a grand final where. Two powerhouse clubs from wherever, I don't care who they are, but two clubs that might have been doing it tough for the last 50, 60 years get to actually... <laughs> don't know where they're from. Don't no. know where they're from. Who they get they to play each other, but no corporate people can get in and the ground is actually full with like full tribal... Actual supporters. Actual, <laughs> like if you've you been... You mean people that don't go to the bar? That's right. Without yes. their cheese board. Correct. Yes. Correct. Like, like, like how an Anzac fans. Day match feels when half the ground's Collingwood and half Essendon. It feels so much better when the crowd's like that. So, mm. Okay. Yeah. Nice. M. Okay. Mine is totally Victorian-centric. I could see what you were trying to do there. <laughs> and um, it was very inclusive and I liked it a lot. But um, mine's the best one. It's that um, <laughs> Richmond play M- Melbourne in the grand final, for the first time ever, it goes into extra time. So we're all on the edge of our seats and we're all terrified because we want Richmond to win just because it's so romantic, right? But that we know that if they do, it will be the end of the world. No, but actually what point. happens mm. is that Richmond wins and it's not the end of the world. It was the missing piece of the puzzle that we needed to achieve world peace. There's peace in the Middle East. The ozone layer is fixed automatically. Everything is right with the world. The Amazon rainforest regrows. Perfect. There's only one big disaster that's going to occur if a grand final goes into extra time. Nicole's going to pass out because she won't eat at a game. Yeah. (laughs) That's the end of me. But pacemaker sales are going to go through the roof. Absolutely. (laughs) With all those salty pies. (laughs) Hey, um, before we get out of here, we've got some final business that I just want to uh, address. Firstly, the Masters Games is coming up and they are seeking female players, ladies, who is in. Anyone who registers actually gets a game. So it's kind of like tackers. So I don't have an excuse anymore. No, you don't. And so it's so exciting from the 1st to the 7th of October um this is for Victoria um it's in Geelong that's one thing that you need to get yourself to Geelong for it's over 30s over 40s I'm going to put all the details on our socials but um if you've ever dreamed of playing if you've been to our kick and coffee and you had some totally mad skills and you think you can take it you know you get a uniform and everything you probably get a song get the oranges at half time it'd be so exciting Felicity do you want to do it do do it do you get a big V like do you get some kind of like t-shirt that says you were in a master's games for your state or you something. You get a participation cause... ribbon. Oh, that's all I've ever <laughs> got though. Like a healthcare Maybe. kit afterwards something... like with your denker rubber and your, yeah. your ice packs etc. And the a other... grey box bath. <laughs> <laughs> grey box? 
I think it's Radox. No, it is. It was a joke. Sorry. Delicious. Don't have a Greyvox bath without some chips. That's disgusting. <laughs> oh, that's my kind of heaven. And also, this weekend at AH Cap Reserve, the Darabin Falcons are playing their last ever game at AH Cap, which has been the Felks Nest has been um, the home, the uterus if you will, <laughs> of it uh, has given birth to so many um, VFL and now AFLW female players that if you want to get along to celebrate that last little moment of history, it's 12 o'clock on Saturday. And we've got another event to announce. Felicity, would you like to do the honours of this? Oh, gee. Okay. It's big. It is big. So for anybody coming along to the AFLW State of Origin match um, in a couple of weeks at the Dockland Stadium, um, the Outer Sanctum will be there on the night of the 2nd of September. We'll let you know the exact spot, but we will be uh, recording the podcast um, from the venue um, before the match. So come along. We'll be in an area that's open to the public. There's no tickets required. There's nothing like that. We would just love to see you. And we have some amazing guests who are going to come and step on stage and be interviewed uh, in front of you all. And I don't we know, have but... the premiership coach of the Adelaide Woo-hoo! Crows, one Miss Bit Goddard. Awesome. Woo-hoo! With or without guitar. Not sure. She might bring a harmonica. We need to make her sing. Yeah, yeah I know we do. Um, and our other guest already confirmed is Joe Stanley, comedian Joe Stanley, which is very exciting. She's got some big news, hasn't she? She yeah. sure does. So, uh, yeah, come and see the magic on stage. See yes. how the stats See how I did that? Don't happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to be there anyway. Just come a bit earlier. So mm, it's going to yeah. be six till seven and the bounce. Is it seven twenty? Something 30, like that. Yeah. 40, We're 35. out of sanctum. That would be a, too if you've got it. That would be a stat. Mm, be nice. That we don't have. That's one stat we don't have. So we will be there at Docklands Stadium to see the uh, state of origin. We hope that you will be there too. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks to all our many guests and thanks for listening. As always, we'll see you next week and go, go footy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.